Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the engineering side of data. Hey, we got a great one here today. This is part two of a prior episode. We're going to be talking about Data Vault. We covered a lot of good ground last time we talked about it. And uh, we're going to pick up where we left off and talk about some great content. I have as my co-host, once again, Michael Meyer. And also, we have our returning guest, Cindy Mayerson. Thank you both for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me back. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we're going to dive right into the questions. Like I said, we're going to pick up where we left off. Uh, Cindy, you, Data Vault had a recent announcement that's pretty significant. Uh, would you care to elaborate on that? Uh, sure. I can uh, start to give you guys a peek of what's going on. Um, so we announced something called the Advanced Virtual Data Vault Extension. Uh, it does not replace Data Vault 2. It basically enhances what has already been, you know, designed, built. So if you've already implemented a Data Vault, um, we're going to uh, take advantage of what's been built, the knowledge you have in the foundational principles of Data Vault, and we're going to extend those. The real uh, focus of the Advanced Virtual Data Vault is really this idea of um, enabling teams uh, that are currently, say, going at a pace of, you know, X to now go at a pace of X times 10. We're basically compressing the life cycle of the team dramatically, and it basically simplifies the process engine underneath. Oh, sounds exciting. It is. I bet. Everybody likes faster, right? Data Vault. I can't wait to hear more about it in the future. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 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 So one of the things has been kind of as stepping into a, a Data Vault is, is why is um, Data Vault considered a methodology and not a framework? Well, it's really basically by definition. Um, a framework will only tell you what needs to be built. It doesn't tell you exactly how to build it. And in a Data Vault 2 solution, we provide these exacting patterns for modeling and process designs. And those patterns cover people, you know, your teams, your ways of working, as Scott Ambler would say, your wow, um, processes, you know, load, orchestration, uh, engineering process patterns, and technology. Those are the absolute standards. And when they're adhered to, they bring success. So. It's a methodology uh, which is exacting versus a framework that um, permits you to apply different methods and other things. Zachman's a framework, for example. CMMI is a framework. They tell you what needs to be done and what pieces are the, uh, or componentry is important. They don't tell you how to build that. So that's why we say that uh, Data Vault 2 is a methodology. And when you follow those standards, you can produce what we call a data vault done right, everywhere, every time. That's excellent. That's that's a really good, insightful answer to that because I know that comes up even with the people around our organization. So that's that's very helpful. Um, so, what in your experience causes the disconnect between business data science and IT? That's a great question, Mike. Um, 
in my experience, you know, I believe part of it has to do with speaking the language of the business. Um, Bill Inman wrote a great little book called Hearing the Voice of the Customer, which I read a few years back. It's just a quick read, but it's, it's great. Bill has such great insight. And he's been in the industry for so long. So it's always I look at his uh, work as, you know, words of wisdom. But um, oftentimes, you know, business and data science, they're both IT customers. Um, so when I talk about the business, I kind of put them both in the same bucket, if you will. In my experience, you know, IT and, and business have competing goals, you know, and objectives, you know, generally the business data goals and objectives, they're focused on the business's ability to trust the data, which ties to auditability and accountability, you know, uh, data governance. They want to be able to self-explore and discover and self-serve analytics, you know, from a set of reliable data. And they're trying to sift through volumes of data that's moving, you know, all around the organization, all around the world, this idea of volume in motion. And they need to be able to tap into that data effectively. Data science really wants data in its raw form, which is where they differ from the business. The business wants information, you know, data that's been correlated, interpreted, you know, interpolated, interpreted, coalesced, aligned, you know, all of that stuff. Data science wants raw data, and for machine learning, they need high-quality cleanse curated raw data. So once again, their demand on IT falls into the areas of data government, uh, governance, excuse me, data quality, data management, cataloging organization, right? They also need this idea of structural definition and understanding of the data. So IT's goals usually align with the requirements to deliver information to the business amidst, I would say, the challenges of data acquisition. IT is dealing with big data issues. And when we talk about big data, or we aren't just talking about, you know, larger and larger volumes of data, we're talking about volumes of data in motion, data that's flowing into the organization through the processing cycles and analytic tools, you know, out to the consumers through any, any means, you know, web services, APIs, star schema instantiation, flat wide structures, you know, whatever the business needs. And IT's concerns lie in what we would in engineering called the illities of data engineering and management, whether they're dealing with big data or not. You know, issues like reliability, availability, maintainability, auditability. We think about things of, you know, in, in terms of security and privacy, you know, ownership and government, master data management, quality insurance, and so on. So in a nutshell, the goals and objectives of IT can be diametrically opposed to those of the business. And I think that's one of the biggest disconnects. As an industry, as uh, as data warehousing professionals, one of the things we need to learn to do better, and, and some organizations do this better than others, but is to be able to speak to the business and the data scientists in their terms, putting on that business cap. So that's where I think some of the disconnects come from. Yeah, I think it's been interesting because I'm just starting to see this more and more of this also, and I'm starting to see um, from the groups that in our organization, at least that do a lot of the uh, machine learning is, you know, effectively building data sets, like you said, whether it's from raw or whatever level of data they're looking at, but is be able to do it efficiently. And so 
one of the things we're looking at as a, you know, as our engineering teams is how can we be helpful um, to, you know, help that process speed up without getting, you know, in, you don't need to be in all the business that, you know, of the, of the data science that they're doing, but just being helpful for them so they can curate it quicker and start running more tests. Because I think one of the things that's got to be very um, disheartening sometimes is if it takes you months to go out and actually curate a data set, you know, and then finally get to start working with it. So um, that's been a personal goal anyway, is to try to help um, drive that. And we do have, what's interesting in our organization too, we have our, our business is very tied into our teams that are doing machine learning. And I guess maybe it's just the nature of the business, but that also has been helping a little bit too, to, to kind of see the needs in a holistic manner across both groups. So very interesting though. It's a very interesting dynamic. Uh, and I met in many organizations, especially when you get larger organizations. And like you said, which is that sheer volume of information flowing back and forth. Yeah. I think also the other thing is, you know, data science is this new sexy, you know, mm-hmm. sort of endeavor that people capability, if you will. And I think the business is fascinated by it. Right. And so, um, you do find, I think business more prone to be, more interested in what data science is doing than sometimes than what's going on in their IT, their IT departments, right? Because uh, it's, it's this new kind of concept, if you will, or capability, so. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they're looking to, uh, yeah, get to that magic answer, right? And they've heard that data science can give it to them. Yeah, it's a little scary sometimes to think about, to yeah, be honest. That's very true, that's very true, but that's, that's Mike. That's good to hear about your organization making those steps. I think that there's a lot of data scientists that are still operating as curators of their own information, right? They're still digging. They're still spending the majority of their time finding their own data, uh, coming up with their own observations, formats, stuff like that. And now, hopefully, you can start coming source from a IT um, supported data product of sorts. So that's good to hear. Yeah, if I could, Mike, I'm curious, um, how is the collaboration in your organization between, you know, the IT department and your, your data scientists, if I, if I may ask that question? Um, yeah, so I think one of the biggest things that's really is starting to change is the fact that uh, as we start to build out data vault and also um, experience moving to, to the cloud for our enterprise data warehouse, is that... Um, we're having really good conversations because as things have evolved over 10 years, things have evolved and people are like, well, is, you know, what's the, things have changed. So is what we were doing before still the right thing to be doing and looking at it. And I tell you, I've never seen so many people get involved and just um, so energized about building out this next thing and actually getting the value out of it. Because, you know, as something, you know, when you have a build version one, a lot of times it's it's version one and you can get you what you need, but a lot of times then you don't have as many cycles to go back and keep improving on it. You move on to the next area too fast or whatever, and you have, you know, employee turnover. So this is the time that we started saying we need to catalog this. We need to actually say what we truly need, right? So um, building out in terms of um, uh, business intelligence, building out bus matrices to be able to say, what what is the information that we really need across you know what dimensions and stuff so this is to me is going to be uh huge in in the value in that and so um the other thing that we're really trying to work to is is to start to say um and more and we need to spend more time with our 
are, as we've, we're curating more data now with our data scientists to say, this is available and how can, how can we assist you? So. Yeah, and, uh, and one more question and I'll, I'll, I'll stop asking you. <laughs> I'm not put, trying to put you on the hot seat, but I'm curious also because, you know, obviously I've worked with, with data scientists too. And um, have you run into, uh, or let's just, let me ask it this way. Um, have you found that over time, um, as you're implementing your data vault, your data scientists are more or less apt to have duplicate data acquisition going on, you know, in parallel with the efforts that your team has already made? Is that a fair question? That's a fair question because a lot of the data sets are curated outside and like, and like you said, and, and we don't know about those today. So one of the things um, getting, again, getting that a little bit more kind of integrated with our business and with the data scientists at the same time is let's start to build those libraries of data sets out. And if they are very specific to just your one time doing that, that's fine. But if these are reusable, let's make sure that people know where they're at and can reuse them. Um, so that's that's kind of the, the, the critical state I think that we're in. And that's some of the planning that we're trying to do this year to really- oh, That's excellent. Yeah. That's excellent. Okay. Cindy, um, talking about an automation tool, how important is it to have an automation tool when you use Data Vault? Well, I think first of all, we ought to just uh, talk briefly about why so many vendors are able to write DVT components into their automation tooling. Um, and it goes back to the methodology, you know, this, this uh, consistent, repeatable pattern-based methodology, not just in the model, but in the process designs, you know, the data pipeline engineering and the way, you know, we run the agile teaming. Um, if we look at agility, you know, the capability maturity model is the grandfather of all things agile. Uh, and so in order to automate, right, there are certain uh, pieces that must be in place. And we talk about the CMMI levels of maturity with regard to software development. We look at uh, Data Vault, uh, the Data Vault solution, any BI full end to end solution as a software development effort. And we come from this position that, you know, as far as definition, which is level two of the CMMI uh, pyramid, if you will, you can't define what you don't understand. Um, and then we have this level three identification, which is, you know, you can't identify what you don't define. And we step up in the maturity curve, if you will, and we get to, uh, to level four, and it has to do with measurement. And you cannot measure what you don't identify. So each piece steps, you know, upon the next. And then finally, when it comes to optimization, you can't optimize what you don't measure. So every every step of this of the capability maturity model leads you up to ultimately should lead you, I will say, to optimization, which is really what agile is all, all about. The kicker here is that you cannot automate what you haven't optimized. So automation, in my opinion, is puts you off the charts for CMMI. Um, so when we talk about automation and automation tools, the reason that vendors can uh, take the patterns is because Data Vault is already at level five 
out of the box if you follow the standards. So one of Data Vault Alliance's focus is as a standards board is to provide vendor tool component certification. We introduced our, what we call our VTCP, which is our vendor to, uh, tool certification program at last year's conference to help our customers identify automation tools that have passed DVA's testing rigor for compliance. And because uh, we have a set of standards and patterns, right, Data Vault being born out of CMM, vendors are able to take advantage of the metadata-driven approach that's inherent in Data Vault. Um, and the result usually is this suite of vendor tool components that help teams accelerate. You don't need a tool, but we recommend tooling because rolling your own requires maintenance and extensive testing. So the team, in our opinion, should be focused on rapid delivery of business value, not tool maintenance and development, which is why we recommend finding a tool that incorporates State of All 2 compliant methodology. So find a tool, just know when to use it. Well, think about a tool, you know, a tool is only as good as the hand of the skilled craftsman who holds it. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, just leave I'll leave it there right now. <laughs> and you know, one of the things I think that's important with the automation is when you're first starting and trying to get your environment set and get some of the things that you're trying to get done, you're, you're bound to make some early, early mistakes, right? Mm -hmm. You're still learning. So you're going to iterate a couple times over something with having that automation there. It's like, well, now I can just regen what I need to do and get going and testing the data. And to me, that's the biggest difference. If you were, let's say, let's just say you're 10 years into this and you know it inside and out, probably, you know, you can do some things, but still it's, it's you, the value of being able to be, um, being able to, to generate this stuff. And like you said, Cindy, getting, I think it's the agility play of being able to get in your hands of your users to start validating and giving you feedback of what they're seeing is really the important, to me is the important part. You're absolutely right, Mike. I'm 100%. I, I, concur with everything you just said. Um, it, it is the ability to iterate and those tools do, that's why we call them really automation team acceleration tools, right? So that you can, um, you know, make changes uh, very, very quickly with low impact as you're moving along, discovering, you know, things like your business keys and your relationships that may not be self-evident in the data and being able to, um, iterate and integrate on, on business keys. So I absolutely concur that, that that is exactly how you ought to use those automation tools. Cindy, why aren't more people using Data Vault? <laughs> I actually hear that one. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's a common question. And um, You'd be surprised at how many companies and educational institutes and public institutions are using Data Vault. Um, we do have clients across every sector of, of industry and it's growing daily. Um, so it's like coming out of the woodwork. Uh, as I've taught over the years, I'm finding out more and more clients that whose names I recognize, you know, Fortune, you know, 100, Fortune 500 companies that are using Data Vault. They just don't you know, loud it out there, right? 
Um, so we have, you know, for example, in the educational arena, we have several universities around the world that use data vaults in their organizations to run the analytics for, you know, their administration and operations uh, areas. Um, New York University, for example, I believe the University of New South Wales. And um, personally, I've been training a, a group of uh, users um, that are part of an institute up in Canada. You know, we're always surprised to hear from clients who have started a data vault or, you know, wanted to sort of kick the tires on their own. And then they come to training, uh, you know, to learn more, uh, to get certified. And this is where we found, find out who's innovating and who's experimenting or implementing our solutions sometimes. Um, most people, you know, come to find data vault. And we talked about this during our first podcast because they're searching for a better way. And that's, again, how I found it. Um, I'm teaching uh, two classes concurrently right now. And in both of those classes, I, I asked my students this past week, you know, why did you come to class? What brought you to Data Vault? And most of the students said they were looking for a better way. They had been building, you know, in the traditional star schema or third normal form, and they were running into problems with scalability and and flexibility, you know, sort of absorbing changes. And their current solutions were experiencing performance issues. And they were struggling to get data through the pipelines and out to the consumers. And I hear this all the time. Yeah, and absorbing changes has gotta be the, the biggest one, right? Yep. It is. So um, if I can continue with that thought, let me let me just, throw something out there. Um, you know, I, we, I think we talked last time, we were sort of all chuckling about like the new terms and things that come out in the industry. And, you know, we, we look at things like uh, digital transformation and, and data modernization efforts, you know, where a lot of businesses obviously are looking for ways to solve their data analytic problems. And, you know, they're looking to hardware and tooling solutions, um, and those only address the problems for so long, you know, before they hit the wall again. Um, it's one of the reasons I believe that, you know, some of these efforts um, are, are failing. Um, so, you know, Datafall, as we've been saying, is a methodology. So many, many of these businesses, this approach to digital transformation and modernization efforts um, they approach that with the same mindset where they're looking at technology to sort of fix their problem, you know, the, the old silver bullet. Um, and if you're going up against, I'll just joke around for a minute, guys. If you're going up against a werewolf, a silver bullet is beneficial. <laughs> but a werewolf isn't reality, right? The data challenges are very real and they can't be solved by tech, by this silver bullet. They have to be addressed by a plan, a consistent approach, you know, a methodology that is engineered, you know, to build architected, you know, resilient, trustworthy solutions. So uh, I was talking um, uh, with, with a, a dear friend and a colleague, a brilliant guy who we were talking about this whole issue of digital transformation and modernization efforts. And, you know, why people were running into problems and businesses were running into problems with these huge investments that they're making. And he made an observation. He said, you know, Cindy, um, you know, I think the problem is that 
you know, they're, they're adopting hardware, you know, software solutions, which has happened in our industry for decades, but they're not changing their mindset. They're not trying to embrace a methodology that goes on top of all of those pieces. Um, and I have to concur with him. I thought that was a, a quite a, you know, an insightful observation. Um, so anyway, I, I just think that as more and more engineers and, and IT professionals search for solutions, they're coming across Datavault too. They're reaching out, they're asking questions, they're getting involved in, you know, various users group, like we started uh, DVNOG, which is the Data Vault uh, of North America users group. There's a extremely active user group in UK called Data Vault UK. Um, and, and they want to find out more about Data Vault. It's growing in awareness, you know, and there's this, that, that there is this, I would say, stable, tested third approach known as Data Vault 2 that's been around publicly, you know, for over, publicly for over 22 years. So it's becoming more well-known. And the more people who hear about it, the more people, you know, that get excited about it. Um, the other reason why I think Data Vault appears to be uh, less known in our industry um, has to do with the fact that traditionally our institutes of higher learning are slower to pivot at the speed of technology. Um, for example, in the area of information engineering and data science, I would venture to say that the majority of those programs focus on star schemas and third normal form modeling structures. So it's like the way Microsoft sort of took over the PC industry with its software. They started introducing their products into the higher learning educational institutes with free or greatly reduced license offerings to students and teachers. So they caught this emerging workforce first, and then they started educating, you know, younger generations on the tools, you know, all the way down now to primary school, right? So you tend to use what is most familiar. And if star schemas are water familiar, then that's what you're going to use. And to me, what's been really interesting is as somebody that's just like, yeah, very, very early in the journey is when we get into some of the aspects of modeling, what we always challenge each other to go back to and say, how does this align to our business process? So if you start getting off into, you know, left field, it's like, hey, it's time to pull back. This is all about the business processes and how we align to the metrics that they need to do. Not about how many different relationships inside the data you can build out. That's not... That's not the purpose, yeah. And so that's been very helpful. And when we have those discussions and bring the group back together and the business really understands, this is the first time I can say that I see just uh, business folks eyes light up because they understand what the vault is about because it aligns more to their processes. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's awesome. I, I'm excited for you, Mike, for what's going on inside your organization. I really am. Um, because data vault, I, I, I say this all the time, so you guys are going to hear this again. <laughs> it is and always has been and always will be about the business. We encourage, uh, in our training, uh, in the way we take our approach, the whole concept is based on, um, approaching a data warehouse from the business concept and the business process perspective from the eyes of the business so that we only build 
what brings the business value. Uh, we don't, and and um, in class this week, we were, I was kind of teasing my students because you have this temptation as we were sort of going through the workshop exercise, um, they were thinking, oh, well, if we pull this in, we can answer this question. We do this, we, you know, what we, look what we can show the business. And then uh, you have this one small voice, you know, in the, in the class that's like, that's not the question that we chose to solve. So it was kind of fun. It was like a reset and we were all sort of chuckling about it because that's what we do. I think as data engineers, we see the, this huge possibility, right? Of, oh, we can answer this and, oh, we can answer that. And you have to come back to what did the business ask for? That sort of internal scope creep that we get because we get excited about the data and what the potential is, you know, the sort of the, the art of the possible, that's what gets us in trouble with delivery. Uh, and so, uh, I, again, I commend you uh, with what your organization is doing and the way your business is involved and, you know, sort of that, you know, reeling, reeling the team back into reality of, you know, what are we supposed to be delivering that brings the business value that they're asking for? So, yeah, that's it's 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 quite energizing to be able to to do that and just to get the confirmation like that. So, um, one of the the things is again, um, and I'm sure you've seen, you know, great, you know, your your experience with seeing this, but is how does data data vault two enable data science? Some of the examples you've seen and how this all can work. To um, well, I've seen it, obviously, I've seen it in um, inside the intelligence community. Um, but but let me give you an example. Let me just tell you guys a little story. And this is true. This is a true story, um, which is always the best anyway, I think. But when Dan brought Data Vault out of Lockheed back in, you know, 2000, 2001, he was working as a consultant. He was hired by a business that at that time was one of the first online insurance brokerages in the U.S. Um, and that was business. It was also one of the first companies that actually built a data vault as their foundational online transaction processing system. Um, that, that data vault actually undergirded their whole uh, online, uh, if you will, website process. So Dan introduced this concept uh, of using um, a state transition diagram to help the business understand what was happening to the visitors that came to the site. You know, getting this insight into the patterns of behavior, which are, those are data science type insights that you derive. But they wanted to look at the patterns of behavior on the website so they could mitigate this occurrence that you know, we've all come to know, uh, know in, in if you do business on the web as an abandoned cart, yeah. right? And so they added this mining engine into the equation. So the way it worked was that, you know, as a web sur surfer visited their website, the company would capture their session ID and their cookie into two hubs. And this is before people started turning cookies off, right? But their system would pop an ad to incentivize the web, web surfer to sort of their visitor to sort of move along the path toward a sale, right? From one state to the next, if you will. And then the next incentive would be something like a promotional offer to get the surfer's email address, which is another business key from our perspective, um, which got stored in a third hub. And then if they were able to get that email address, 
then the surfer's state was changed from just a web surfer or a visitor, you know, to a prospect because now the company had a way to reach back out to them. Then they'd pop another ad or promotion. They'd incentivize the prospect to sort of enter their, their home address because if they could get their home address, they could provide a quote or an estimate for insurance. So all of this sort of makes sense. You know, once you have a residential address, right, that gives the business the ability to actually give you an accurate quote or an estimate, right? And so that also created what they would call a qualified lead. Now, the thing was, the way the business made their money was by selling a policy, right, as a brokerage. So there was always this risk that someone could take the estimate or the quote and then go sort of bargain on their own, right, with the insurance companies, because you know exactly which company is giving exactly which quote coming out of the brokerage. And so, you know, they wanted to make sure that they popped another, another ad or incentive to move that you know, qualified lead into a customer, you know, so that they purchased, they went through the purchase process. So what they did was along each step of this process, they built link structures between each hub. These links are what we call exploration links, and they were used to capture the relationship between the hubs as the web surfer moved through these different states, you know, from one state to the next. And they collected all of that data into the data vault for about six months. And they fed that data to this machine learning engine, this mining engine, and they trained the engine. And the mining engine refined the data. It calculated various scores, you know, related to ads and incentives and, you know, things like that. So that what they ended up doing was that the mining engine would start popping various ads. They were presented to the surfer based on behaviors and responses you know, as they sort of change state. During the first six months after tuning the ML engine, right, the revenue of that company grew from $66 million to about $125 million in six months. And then they took that data, they, they tuned the engine, they continued to receive and, you know, feed the data from the exploration links into that engine, continuously, you know, refining the algorithm and the data and things like that. The, the engine got so fast that it would literally pop an ad almost as soon as someone hit a button, right? Hit the next process button. Um, and they left this thing running for 12 months. It actually got so fast that they could get a surfer from their initial visit hitting the website to a purchase in five minutes. And when you look at the way online, you know, uh, marketing and, and online sales uh, behave, uh, the faster you can get someone into a purchase situation, the more likely you are that you're going to actually make that sale. Basically, at the end of 18 months, the full life cycle of this process, they had moved the company from a $66 million company to about a $330 million company. And then that company sold to a large, they were bought, bought out, right? Um, and so that's how we use uh, Data Vault and how it can be used in data science. Last year, at last year's uh, Worldwide Data Vault Consortium, the entire conference focused on, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning, you know, a, a variety of, you know, data, data science aspects. So 
we had a you know a week's worth of presentations from data scientists and analytics professionals, including you know a PhD uh, candidate working out of Oxford University in UK. They all spoke about how they were able to utilize Data Vault to optimize and enable their you know their AI and their ML algorithms. So these are just examples of how you know Data Vault really enables data science. It was originally designed from the concepts around neural nets that are found organically in nature. So makes sense. Those, yeah, it makes complete sense now. And those are such great examples. And yeah, that's just, it's just kind of, for me, it's eye-opening just to think of the possibilities, like you said, and um, with those links and being able to just to continue to drive the change that you need, that you can within an organization. So yeah, that's, that's, that's awesome. So the, the fine grain data that data vault captures, that's the key, right? And then how it's modeled as well, makes it conducive to training data science models? Well, uh, the whole idea of, of what we call exploration links is an exploration link is designed to um, discover relationships in data in and among data that are not evident in the operational systems. and uh, because of that, if you think about what um, a lot of data scientists' goals are, they're looking for that outlier. They're looking for that um, sort of anomaly in the data that uh, is not self-evident when you're looking at large volumes of data. So exploration links are one method that uh, enable data scientists to use this, these, this derivation, if you will, uh, of um, you know, uh, relationships among data. One of the things we did uh, in, uh, in, inside the DOD was we used those algorithms um, and we helped the, the data science do some scoring on the algorithm itself. For example, um, you know, you have the, this, uh, this idea of um, confidence ratings, if you will, uh, and then how do you test those those confidence ratings? A confidence rating, and just sort of as a as a, a, a just a quick touch, it's not this simple, but I you know, think of a confidence rating as saying, you know, an algorithm uh, comes up with a, a derivation that um, this piece of data is uh, related to this piece of data. And the algorithm has a rating of, let's just say, uh, 86% that these two elements, these two keys, if you will, are related to one another. Well, what comes, uh, what, what's interesting is, is another score. And, and the other score that we're looking at has to do with, you know, you're, you're this confident, but what does the data say? So if you have uh, a confidence rating of, of 86, and then you run a score and you let the data tell the story, you may find that um, only 20% of the data support that confidence rating, which means that you, you have a false positive going on because, you know, while the algorithm guesses that, that this is a relationship, the data doesn't support it or doesn't support it strongly enough. It's called a strength rating. And so that's kind of in a nutshell um, what you can do with DataVault is, is the algorithm scores scores the derived relationship, the data tells a story that supports it. So that is one sort of no, that makes guess, sense. illustration, right? Yeah, really helps the 
data scientists with their feature engineering aspects of their job, right? What mm -hmm. variable should I include? What's the relationship between the two? It just helps guide the exploration phase as well as the feature engineering aspect of it as well. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's talk about data vault versus uh, data mesh, right? Data mesh is certainly a um, fairly hot topic that's out there in industry. Um, how would you compare data vault to data mesh? So um, first of all, I'll say I am by by no means a data mesh expert, and I don't play one on TV, right? What what I do is listen to the industry. I you know I read various articles like most people. I listen to podcasts like yours, Bob. You know, and I kind of wrap my head around some of the terms that are being you know you know thrown about, if you will, in the industry um, to try to discern. I'm listening more for like definitions. Can anybody actually define something? You know what what this term means. So. First, I would say that um, data mesh and, and data vault uh, aren't really apples to apples. Data mesh, at least in my mind, um, data mesh is a concept that's being sort of defined and fleshed out as the industry sort of wrestles with, you know, how it's going to incorporate this new concept into their business, um, which, you know, data vault, whereas data vault is really a very well-defined methodology, it deals with you know, specifics related to, you know, how to build a complete analytic solution, you know, starting with the business concept perspectives, as, as Mike was pointing out, right, uh, over to acquisition, data acquisition, out to information delivery. And then we, we circle back around through a closed loop system to, you know, ultimately uh, continuous improvement for the enterprise. So um, it's a true end-to-end -end solution. Data mesh, as at least as I understand it, really talks about the, um, the democratization of, of the data store uh, while it retains a, a centralized management of the data, the, the metadata. So to me, data mesh is this concept that espouses, you know, moving the productionalization of information outcomes, you know, out from under the control of IT and into the functional business areas in an effort to you know, address the, the problems that businesses have encountered in utilizing their data. So rather than, you know, centralizing the data store in what data mesh terms this monolithic, you know, data store, uh, the data is uh, democratized to the functional business areas while the metadata remains centrally management, managed, excuse me. Um, secondly, you know, one area that I, where I see a synergy then between data mesh concepts and the data vault methodology is that uh, both assume this centralized metadata infrastructure management approach uh, in order to succeed. And that's sort of the tie-in between the two. In other words, in mesh, you can deploy the data wherever you want, but in order to be successful, it says you have to have centralized metadata management. The methodology of data vault that addresses consistency, repeatability, you know, pattern-based approaches to design of both the architecture, your process paradigms, and the logical data model are very much aligned um, with data mesh and would, in my, in my opinion, I'll just say this, enhance any implementation of a data mesh. Um, the, the data mesh concept has not defined how to do this. Again, it's a concept, you know, maybe you could even consider it a framework 
uh, in its description of what needs to be done. It's not a methodology. It doesn't tell you how to build one, how to implement it, right? So in fact, I would, uh, I will be bold enough to say, you know, you've got this on recording. <laughs> you can hold me to this, right? But I would be bold enough to say that um, the Data Vault 2 methodology is the optimal approach for building out a data mesh because it does give you the how to build. The guiding principles that have underpinned the, what I would call the data, mesh, the, the data mesh movement are exactly the same guiding principles that have been underpinned in the Data Vault. We share a lot of the same values. We share a number of the same principles in the way that we approach uh, these data and information challenges. So as you can imagine, uh, with a methodology that shares so many of the same values and guiding principles, you know, DVA personally, we're, we're thrilled with, with what's going, uh, you know, coming out of Data Mesh. We believe that, you know, the glove fits beautifully, it fits naturally, um, that Data Vault 2 resonates with the concepts um, of the data mesh. So um, I will say, uh, I will throw out a shameless plug, if I may, um, that one of our keynote speakers at the conference this, this year, coming up in May, is um, uh, a woman by the name of Jennifer Stirrup. She's a recognized speaker, you know, sort of a thought leader in our industry. And she's going to be talking about data mesh, you know, data fabric, and data vault. So um, I would encourage folks to to take a look at uh, you know uh, at the conference and what's going on there this year because um, we are definitely addressing uh, a data you know data mesh. But going back to this concept of data mesh, one of the business problems that the mesh is sort of aimed at helping uh, to resolve is born out of the fact that the business has been asking for these things like self exploration, discovery, you know, self service in you know accessing and analyzing their data and they've been asking for this for decades and data vault methodology was engineered to help sort of scratch that itch well, that makes perfect sense thank you uh, what are some of the common criticisms of data vault and uh, which ones are unfair <laughs> um i think there are the most common complaint uh, from folks that are looking, they look at the model again. And uh, one of the, the comments is always, you know, there are just too many joins. They complain that they can't get data out in a performant manner. Um, and that's probably the number one complaint. And it's completely unfounded in our opinion and in the experience of, of a lot of our customers. If you follow the standards and the recommended best practice, you will be able to get information out of out to the business in a very highly performant manner, and that's at volume and at scale. Um, and so we find that it's those implementations where the team has broken the standards or ignored the recommended best practices. That's where the problems arise. Yeah, I think that I've heard that too many joins uh, criticism before as well, and I think. I usually chalk that up to people that haven't had the opportunity to learn some hard lessons. Uh, they will, they might have a different answer in five years. So, yeah. True. Yeah. And there's a difference when you look under the covers. I mean, it's, these are all inner joints. They're not left out or so again, you start to talk about performance and what that means. And 
it's a big difference there too. And, and things that, you know, if you look at, I always look traditionally back at some of the things that have been built over my lifetime and how many times you get into scenarios where people are putting a lot of in, embedded uh, subselects and you start to do those, you know, you're just basically looping through the, and it's so slow. And then, so that's way worse than a, you know, than a join, a true join that's going to be built um, on a good structure. So yeah, I, I, that one's always funny. It's like, well, there's too many tables, too many joints. What? It's like, yeah, yeah. It's like anything else. You got to take it for what it's worth. But. Well, one of the things we, and that's a great point, Mike, one of the things that we, we talk about and one of the things we teach in Data Vault, we talk about these loading patterns, these loading paradigms that are actually optimized for performance and tuning. Um, and uh, it kind of, you know, leads into the idea of, you know, some of the challenges that teams have to sort of migrate, you know, or, or move to a data vault solution. But um, it has to do with a long standing tradition of um, thinking in, um, I would say, uh, well, I'll say not thinking in, in block process mentality, not thinking of data in terms of blocks. We think, uh, we think of data, uh, you know, in, in other terms, like, you know, maybe windowing functions and things like that. We, we don't think of moving data from one block to the next or processing data uh, from one block to the next. And uh, so we get into these, you know, these processes that are simply overloaded altogether. They're trying to do too much. And that's a hard habit for people that have been building in, um, in, in say, a, for star schemas, dimensions, and facts, it's a hard habit to break, not overloading your processes. And um, one of the things that we do teach in Data Vault is, you know, how to uh, uh, decouple, how to divide and conquer. It's, it's the application of set logic math to the foundational aspects of how you build processes to move data. So it, 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 is, a, it is a challenge there. Yeah, definitely. So, Cindy, what do you think is the most difficult thing for developers to grasp when they're moving from doing traditional warehouse, whether it's 3NF or star schemas to data vault? Um, I think one of the toughest things for developers to deal with is stepping away from this practice of conforming data and applying business rules on the way into the data warehouse. Um, the other difficult concept, and that's what we were just talking about, really, is that that data pipeline engineers struggle with is this concept of divide and conquer, simplifying these traditionally overloaded processes and trying to accomplish all these operations in one load, you know, trying to push data into, say, a conformed dimension. Um, and that's just a hard, it's a hard habit to break, and it's also um, generally, um, it's a, it's a, it's not something you're necessarily taught in school, like how do you decompose an overloaded process? Um, what are the techniques for simplifying and things like that? So um, I think those are the challenges that I, I believe I see the most. And that makes a lot of sense. I, you know, the things about, yeah, when you, if you can take a step back and just see it as it unwinds and not having to have all of that stuff up front coming into the warehouse, it's like, yeah, let's just start getting the data in and then let it progress to that raw vault and then the business vaults where we can apply it. Just streamlines and simplifies. But like you said, our heads have been wrapped around for years that, oh, we got to get this conformed. We got to build it up front. We can't. Yeah, it's a, it is a paradigm shift, but 
for those, you know, again, once your head gets wrapped around it, it's a major uh, efficiency and better way of doing things. Yeah, I mean, we, we've been taught to think and program in, uh, in batch mentality, not block mentality. And, um, you know, it's that looping, you know, for this row, you know, do X, Y, and Z, next row, do X, and it's all conditional and it's overloaded from, from you know, from, I would say, from my opinion. But it's, but it's actually true in, in, in overall um, in our industry, I would say. Yeah. Cindy, what are some things that I can do in the beginning of my data vault journey that'll help future-proof my implementation from re-engineering down the road, I guess, yeah. Um, well, there, I think there are a number of things, actually. Um, number one, I would say get your team trained. <laughs> I mean, the entire team, including your architecture, data pipeline engineers, you know, data modelers, agile leads, you know, all of these folks that are part of this process. And I would say, including your, your sponsor, your champion, right? Um, get them uh, trained so that they understand the importance of keeping the team, if you will, on the rails, adhering to the standards. That's, I think, the number one thing. Um, the other thing is, you know, I would engage, can engage or I would engage in maybe a kickstart or coaching sessions with one of the authorized training partners. Um, these are these are training partners that have been certified to train in, in Data Vault standards and they've embraced those standards in the manner in which they help their customers implement Data Vaults. Um, third, I think I would reach out to datavaultalliance.com with questions. You know, we're here to help. Um, attend the conference, uh, either in person or virtually. You know, take a look at the sessions that are lining up for the conference this year at, at www.dvc.com. You know, uh, meet some of the successful customers, learn about Data Mesh, hear first about this advanced, our advanced Data Vault, you know, ex uh, virtual Data Vault extension, you know, find out what it's all about. Um, engage with a certified data vault compliant automation vendor to help your teams accelerate. Um, my recommendation is that you do that after your teams are trained. <laughs> so we've seen teams rely on the automation tools to decide what the model, you know, will look like based on the source systems that these, these tools have been um, uh, connected to, if you will. Um, and oftentimes these just result in source system data vault models, which are not, you know, what a data vault two solution is. Um, I, I know I, I, you guys, I recall you guys chuckling when I said this last time and I'll say it again, you know, um, building hubs, links and satellites does not a data vault two solution make. <laughs> so, um, and all of these automation tools, uh, you know, uh, regardless of their close compliance to the data vault standard or not, they all have an easy button that you can hit and it'll generate a model straight out of your source system. That's not a data vault because that's, it's not designed. You have to take the time to design. Um, there is no, there is no silver bullet for that. There is no easy button for that. It takes work to do this correctly. And that's true in any data warehouse. So, or analytics solution. So. Thank you. It's, um, so I'm a fairly new to data vault in general, and it's fairly obvious that how data vault helps with ingestion, but how does it help when it comes to, uh, develop a star schema or some other 
modeling, um, uh, yeah, modeling that the, the business can take advantage of, right? How do we get from these neat ingestion models like you know, hubs, satellites, all that stuff, how do we get it usable to the business? Um, I think one of the main keys um, in in getting data, if you will, uh, developing, a, a, if you want to say a star schema for a consumption at the consumption layer uh, is virtualization. Uh, we're able to construct views that simulate both dimensions and facts, for example, that remain views or virtual objects. Uh, this enables agility and flexibility at the consumption layer. It's much easier to be agile, to pivot uh, when you are working with a view rather than actually physically having to move data. And so, um, you know, that I would say that that is probably one of the key things is what we call virtualization, which is really, you know, writing a view uh, on top of a, a raw vault or a business vault. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I think that's the, as the key is in, it's understanding that's like you say, it's being able to get it to the hands of people to review, because if, if you, let's say you're off the mark just a little bit, you can, you can turn around changes much quicker and then, then decide at some point in time, if it's getting to be where, you know, performance dictates that you have to kind of go to a physical table, then, then do so. But the agility play with virtualization, I think is, is definitely is huge. Yeah, I agree, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Well, any parting thoughts or advice to folks out there that want to continue to know more about and learn about Data Vault? Um, yeah. So I think, uh, if I may, I'd like to just sort of clarify, if I can, for a moment uh, about what this advanced virtual Data Vault is uh, extension really is, just at, at a really high level. Um, and so uh, what I'd like to just say about this is that, you know, Dan has always been a visionary. He's constantly reading, researching about future trends, you know, looking at ways to innovate. Um, Data Vault would not be as flexible as it, as it, as it is in its uh, implementation architecture if it didn't allow for innovations in the technological landscape, right? So a huge part of that has to do with the fact that it's a platform it is, you know, what we call platform and database technology independent. And because of this, when new technologies do get introduced into the marketplace, we're always looking at ways to help customers take advantage of those platforms. And so we innovate, but we innovate with the standards in place. So, uh, you know, in, in 2018, uh, at the, the, the Europe, the first and only so far European conference we've had of WWDVC. One of the Dan, one of the things Dan did was talk about predictions. He's he loves giving predictions, and um, so he talked about this this concept that soon data would be simply too large. It would be too much data. It would be too large to move, right? And so and that started that thinking of his started back in you know around. 2012, he actually started blogging about it when Hadoop, when that wave was was rising with Hadoop. So he's been thinking about this, you know, this problem of data being, you know, too big to move for over a decade. Um, and two years ago, he started working on this extension to Data Vault that just fits beautifully into this arena. 
Um, it enables companies that have Data Vault 2 compliant warehouses to sort of add to their toolboxes. And it ensures that there's no loss of the investment that has been made, right? There's no, you know, retraining investment. There's no refactoring investment. You know, what's been built continues and is preserved. So what this advanced virtual data vault extension does is it ensures that, you know, what we've always taught, which is, you know, that as it relates to standards and rules around the data vault model, the data vault two is a logical model. How the model is implemented physically may look different, right, from its logical design. So when we start talking about this extension, this advanced virtual data vault is something that Dan's been blogging about for, for years, right? So now that we've arrived at this time in industry where data simply is too big to move, we are as an innovator addressing that phenomenon that we're encountering now uh, with the amount of data that we have is simply too big to move, which Dan, you know, has been predicting since, you know, uh, you know, 2000, 2012 at least. Um, and so we want, we want to be able to ensure that that data vault is resilient to technology changes in the future. Whatever the technology changes are over the next five to seven years, we're always looking at innovation in technique and enabling the data vault standards to continue to stand the test of time so that it remains a methodology that is trustworthy to invest in. Um, and so we think about this, um, you know, from terms of, you know, hardware vendors and tool vendors, you know, they sort of come and go, but the solid engineering principles behind good data management, data governance, you know, auditability, flexibility, scalable, this kind of resilient design, those principles don't change. So if you have this as your foundation, then you basically invested in, in educating your teams, learning this methodology, so that it grows with your organization and is resilient to the changes in the industry, which is one of the reasons why we are able to offer something like an extension that's based on the logical model to help teams get greater acceleration, right, and reduce this this process time, if you will, process uh, of the data at the at the foundational level. So we're excited to announce this. We're excited to talk about it in detail uh, at the conference. Um, Dan has Dan's. We've been. We've been trying to get Dan to like stand down, you know, just um, you know, he, he's really excited about this. He's ex excited about bringing it to the community and um, and we're excited too, but you know, we wanna launch this <laughs> at the right time. And um, so we wanna uh, be able to use the, the conference as a great platform um, along with these concepts of, of mesh and fabric and all these things that are coming out um, and, and uh, put this whole package together for people from a conceptual and standards perspective. So we're excited, you know? Yeah. Wow, Sounds like it's going to be a great one. Be, yeah. That just even makes the, the conference even more compelling to want to attend. So um, I think May is going to be a very special month when it comes to for, for data people this year. So. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, we'll have links to the conference information and some of the other things we talked about. I'll also include a link to the episode one of this conversation, right? So part one. So I uh, should have mentioned this at the top of the conversation, but yeah, again, I'll include that link and you'll be able to catch up and 
Cindy, thank you very much for coming on the show again. Mike, thank you very much for co-hosting again. Gentlemen, always a pleasure. Thanks so much.